Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Away we go. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast, episode number 70. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, today, buddy? You know, another day in paradise. It's a beautiful, sunny day here in Boston. Uh, actually, no, it's just like every other day in Boston recently, which is about 60 and rainy. We might as well move to the uh, Pacific Northwest at this point. But besides that, we're doing all right, buddy. Well, speaking of Boston, we, we landed another legend here today. We got the great Coach Mike Boyle with us. And if you've been under a rock in this industry for the last 50 years and you don't know who he is, he's one of the most foremost expert, uh, experts in the field of strength and conditioning, functional training, and general fitness. Uh, he goes out, lectures, teaches, trains, writes, and he's been the co-founder of uh, Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning um, since 1996. Um, he's also been the head strength and conditioning coach at uh, Boston University, um, where he's worked with the ice hockey team, all the teams up there. And then this one, as I wrote it in the in the script, it pained me. I have to say, as much as as I as I honor your work, Coach Boyle, this he was the strength and conditioning coach for the Boston Red Sox in 2013 that won the World Series. As a Yankee fan, that that's bitter coming out of my mouth. I'm going to say that. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, he's also uh, worked with the Boston Bruins, U- U.S. women's uh, Olympic hockey team, you name it. Uh, I could go on forever. Uh, Coach Boyle is absolute legend in the league and uh, in, in this game. And so we're, we're honored to have you. Thank you for coming on the, the show, Coach. Thanks for having me. I, I love to do this. So I'm, I, I always enjoy having a nice conversation with some smart people. Well, I should probably get off. But uh, anyways, why don't we get, why don't we get started? I don't know if you're on the right show yet. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say. All right, Coach. Well, you've been doing this for a long time, and uh, you've seen tons of changes. So for better or for worse, what do you see as the biggest change in the fitness and performance industry over the years? I I say this all the time, which is, and everybody laughs at me, but because Eric actually had me at 50 years, which is not true. I'm at about 42, but I'm not quite at 50. But (laughs) um, honestly, it's think about the technology. It's the computer. Okay, that's, you know, in my lifetime, we were doing this before they were computers and before they were cell phones. So I think that's what people have to realize when when we're looking at this sort of, I guess I'm, I'm probably, I would call myself late first generation strength coach. So I was, I maybe wasn't one of the first ones, but I was in that first wave of people. And that first wave of people started doing this with yellow legal pads and mimeograph machines and typewriters. And that I think for people to think, oh my God, that was only 40 years ago. But that's what you're looking at 
I think from from my perspective, when you think, wow, things have really changed. All right, so, so the question is, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Eric. I'll let you follow up. I got no, 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 go question. So. All right. So, so here's my question. So over all that time, have you seen anything that's really been a true innovation or are we just kind of recycling the same information over and over again? Um, I would say, well, I would say that we've seen some things that were true innovation. Yes. But I don't think we've been recycling the same things over again. I would think if you look back to, I think Gary Gray and functional anatomy was a really true innovation. I think that I remember going to that class in the nineties when I was working for the Bruins. And I remember sitting there and just being blown away thinking, wow, this, the way I was taught anatomy is wrong. What, what I thought the muscles did was wrong. I think that was really true innovation. When you look at, the whole idea of functional training, quote unquote, but getting away from, I always call it sort of the wide world of sports effect. Because when I was a kid, you basically saw a wide world of sports. You saw bodybuilding, Olympic lifting and powerlifting. And that's what people assumed strength and conditioning was somewhere kind of as this functional anatomy wave came through guys like, like Greg Cook and Mark Verstegen and guys like me started saying, wait a second, I think we can apply what we're hearing from some of these physical therapists to what we're doing from a training perspective. So I think those have been the really big shifts when you look at, I mean, it's still kind of barbells, dumbbells, lift, you know, lift things, progressive resistance. I don't think we've gotten way past DeLorman Watkins. I look, you know, you guys, Eric's a little, maybe on the more of the PT side, I think PT is kind of going backwards because ACL rehab, we're seeing people going back to leg extensions and going back to isokinetic testing. So in some ways, I think uh, uh, the, the cycle continues where we're going back to, you know, all of a sudden people are saying, oh, non-functional exercises is okay as long as it's targeting the muscle. And I kind of look, I, I don't agree, but I start coming off on, on that end again. I think in some ways I came off as a as a young smart ass. Now I'm coming off as the old guy who doesn't want to change his ways. So. I think I've been the same guy the whole time. It's just how people are going to view me. Well, that's the, the thing as, as you're saying that, that the cycles is, is the first thing that came to mind. Cause I came up in the late nineties, early two thousands when it was you and Gray and Vern Gambetta and, and people like that who kind of made the functional training thing cool. And then now all of a sudden now it's not cool anymore. And, and, and that's getting bashed because back then it was everybody's bashing bodybuilding and isolated stuff. And so I don't know if it's it's so much it's something that that's that um, one sided. I, I think there could be a blend of the two, and I think that's what you've also said all along. But tell me where that message gets lost of what you, you're either in the functional camp or you're in the the isolation camp, and 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 where that line gets drawn. Yeah, I honestly I don't know where the line gets drawn. Sometimes I was having a conversation with somebody because now it's all about fascial training, but. I was saying to uh, a young guy named Danny Foley, who I love, and Danny's a really smart guy and has been writing a lot about fascial training. And I said, I think if you look at what we were saying about functional training 20 years ago, it's basically, you know, all of a sudden people are saying, oh, well, you know, fascial slings. And, and I can look back literally and show you my presentations and show you the references to Thomas Myers and the references to fascial slings and the reference to the the interconnectedness of people from 
from the from the glute through the thoracolumbar fascia into the opposite side lat. So, and then I think hey, there's some people. You're, we're talking about it being cyclical. There's some people who never rode the wave. There's some people still doing it the way they did it 40, 50 years ago. So, I feel like we've incrementally made progress. I think training for athletes is generally better than it was when I started. I think there are some people like any pendular sort of thing. There are some people who are still just doing this sort of meathead bodybuilding, powerlifting kind of thing on one end. And then there's some people who are probably too far out on the, the quote unquote functional side. And I think I, I've told this story a bunch of times, but I get stuck on the functional side just because that was the title of the book that human kinetics wanted. And so I was kind of pigeonholed as a functional training guy, but the, um, I should, I've said this because I've told this story a bunch of times and I can never think of what Ed's last name is, but the acquisitions editor for Human Kinetics, first name was Ed, his last name is escaping me, but he at that time sent me a letter. So this was 2002, I guess. Get a letter in the mail and it says, I open up the letter and it says, you'd be, we think you'd be the perfect guy to write a book on functional training. And they were polite enough to contact me. So I, I actually called back because his number was there and said, well, first I said, well, how many people did you send the letter to? And he said, you were the only one. And I thought, wow, that surprises me. I would have thought you might've sent this to eight or 10 people and tried to see who would be willing to write the book. I said, I don't, I don't think I know what functional training even is. So I don't think I'd be the guy to write the book. And his response was, well, we think what you're doing is functional training. We've been reading your articles and looking at some of the stuff you've been writing in other publications. So we think you'd be great to write this book. I said, so I'm just going to write a book about what I want to write a book about. And you're going to call it functional training for sports. And his response was basically, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. You're going to write a book about how you think training should be done. And then we're going to call it functional training for sports. I had no idea what I was getting myself into in all honesty, in terms of how people's perception of me would change, how functional training would would maybe change or how people would perceive the idea of functional training. But I get into an actual, not an argument, but with Charles Staley, because he panned my book in a review talking about, you know, it's all about BOSU balls and closing your eyes. And I said, I this was when you were still responding in the beginning of the internet. And I said, you didn't read the book. I said, you need to go back and read the book because if you read the book, you will see that there are about eight exercises to demonstrated in there that uses stability ball out of 50 some odd exercises that are illustrated in the book. But what you did is you read the title and you literally judged the book by the cover because at that time, and this goes back to the, my longtime connection with gray and with Lee and with FMS, um, they wanted a picture Reebok at that time who was promoting coreboard was willing to use their photographer. They had a great photographer who volunteered to do all the pictures for the book for me. The only difference was we had to sort of give Reebok some cover exposure. So it ended up, uh, I can never remember anything. Rico was the model and Rico was on the cover of, you know, with a medicine ball standing on the coreboard. And that was sort of people's picture of what was inside the book. But that wasn't inside the book, really. I don't even know if the coreboard actually ever made it inside the book. I think it probably only made it on the outside. <laughs> Sorry, long answer to a short question. So, uh, but I have a follow-up because something that you mentioned there, you said our training has gotten better for athletes, but if, if the person at home 
sitting on the couch is, is watching this, they say, well, then how come we have more Achilles tears right now at week eight in the NFL than we have all season in the last five years, you know, going back and we keep getting more and more of these injuries. Like, how do we answer that collectively that we're doing a better job, but the injuries are not going down. If anything, they may be going it's, up. It's really interesting. You say that we were having a conversation about uh, this today at work. And I actually think, and this may get me in trouble. I think you can blame the players union for that because the limitations in off-season training, the limitations in OTAs, as a strength coach in the NFL now, you do not have nearly enough contact time with your players, particularly in the off-season. So the preparatory work is being farmed out to whoever. And, I mean, I've seen some horrific things that guys are doing in terms of off-season and getting ready. So I think part of the problem is that these really highly paid guys maybe aren't going where they should be going and aren't doing the things that they should be doing in the off season. And then as a result, you take, you take the top 1% nervous system in the world and then you go put it into probably the most dangerous game in the world. And you ask these people, the tissue that is probably unprepared for the demands of the nervous system. And I've always said this, I think the elite athlete gets hurt a lot because their, their nervous system very few people have a nervous system that has the capability of hurting them. But you're elite, you're super elite NFL type guy. Even if you look at sort of the strikers that pull their hamstrings in soccer, all these guys, they have this super elite nervous system that can literally overpower their muscular system, whether it's their Achilles or whether it's their hamstring or whether it's their inability to decelerate and they tear their ACL. So um, it's like we've created or we have a generation of these super powered cars with no brakes in them. And from a training standpoint, we haven't done a really good job of implementing the brakes, putting the brakes back into the system and these guys get hurt. But I think if coaches at the NFL level were given more time, I think you'd see the injury rates go way, way back down, but the union fights against that because they don't want guys to, to have to be in the building and have to be, here plus if you look at what are they doing they're extending the game schedule right so that you know it gets starts earlier there's less training there's more games um football is the the big example is premier league soccer you look at premier league soccer and you wonder why they're not all hurt because elite level soccer goes literally year round they get about a month off if you're playing champions league and some of those things i don't know how those guys do it i think it's a miracle that they stay together one obviously there's less contact, but it's uh, it's really difficult. Yeah, I, I can back you up on the scheduling thing. We had this conversation with Eric Pressy, and he said people just don't understand. We just don't get access. There's just not enough literal hours in the day during a major league baseball season, which you know all too well. And then myself working, I was a consultant with the Giants for nine years, and what people don't understand about the schedule is that they get this silly break where you get access to them in the spring for a spring program. And then they get like almost six weeks off to go out. And like you said, train with any Yahoo trainer that they want. And then they come back and it's the day they come back, you have every skill coach chomping at the bit to get full access to them. And so now they're going full board with that lack of preparation. So that schedule is a huge, huge contributor. Yeah. And the thing is I saw one year, there was a big article about, uh, you know, one of the guys was literally doing, MMA training to get ready for football. Guys are doing Navy SEAL. Guys are doing – they need to be on their feet running. If you want somebody, they need to be 
an NFL athlete, but there's a reason these guys' careers are three years because they don't train enough. I look at a lot of these guys and think if they dedicated themselves to training, if they looked at this and said, this is my 12-month-a-year, 365-day-a-year job, a lot more of these guys would have much longer careers. If they went out and said, uh, I need to find the best person in my area to train with. They don't. They train with, like you said, some Yahoo, somebody's buddy, somebody who recruits them. I look at me and I've had this conversation. I've done a couple of consults for NFL strength coaches. And I said, do you know how many NFL strength coaches have contacted me about training one of their players in the offseason? I'll give you a number. I'll give you a guess in the numbers between uh, one and zero. <laughs> And the answer is zero. I have never had an NFL strength coach contact me and say, hey, I've got a guy in your area. And I'd love to get him. I'd love to get him in a really good strength and conditioning program. That's a massive systemic failure. First thing we did when I was working with the Red Sox, I said, where do these guys train? And that was what I wanted to know. I contacted every guy. Where do you train? Who are you training with? And I was lucky. I had. Uh, Jacoby Ellsbury and uh, Dustin Pedroia and Johnny Gomes, they were all Exos guys. I was like, perfect. Your Exos guys, great. Get down there with Mark and whoever's working with Mark. You're in a great environment. You're going to do fine. But I had guys, I had another guy whose name I will not mention, who I really loved, was one of my favorite guys. And I asked him, he was in Houston, Texas. And he said, I said, where are you training? And he said, well, actually, I go to the place that my wife goes to because it's close to my house. Yep. And I, I said, seriously, so you picked your off-season training location based on it being near your house and your wife also works out there. And I said, how's the quality? And he, he, the kid was honest. I'll give him credit. He said, I think the guy makes the workouts up when I get there, to be honest. I think he just makes something up for me to do that day. And I thought, now this is a multi-million dollar pitcher. I happen to know another guy in Houston, trains baseball players. I said, hey, I'm sending this guy over to you. The guy I'm talking about went on to be like a three-time All-Star. The amount of money that he made after going to a better off-season training place was substantial. But his decision-making process was, that's a 45-minute drive. Imagine thinking there's somebody really good at what I, or training me, there's somebody who's really good at that, but he's 45 minutes away and it's the off-season and gosh, I don't want to drive 45 minutes. I'd rather go to someplace near the house. And then wondering yeah. why you got right? So, but this is yeah. actual. This happens. I would say it happens every day in the NFL offseason. Some guy goes either to a place that he knows somebody or a buddy or somebody who's a friend of his agent. Nobody looks around. I was looking around and I said, hey, I, I was on websites. I was looking at people's websites and saying, okay, what is the philosophy of this place? I need to know if I'm going to have one of my 40-man roster guys there. I need to know that these people have a clue. Yeah, that that's a tough one, and I think a, a lot of it too is. Uh, and, and look, I've been I've been sort of guilty as well. You want the opportunity to work with pros, so what do you do? You offer to train pros for free, and the pros are coming in, going, "Well, I'm getting free training, so it must be good. It must be good for everybody." Instead of spending a lot of money. And uh, now, luckily, I didn't screw anybody up, but I, I'm going to be honest, there was a good chance that I could have early on because I didn't know what I was doing necessarily. But I think that's what happens a lot of the times, right? You get these coaches that are young and they want to train the pros because every single young strength coach wants to train the pros, right? That's that's one of the things that they want to do. But I, I think uh, I've quickly realized that um, 
you know, that, that is somewhat overrated uh, and it helps build your ego and your resume. But it, at the end of the day, training professional athletes is, uh, is, is a tough way to make a really, really solid business. Yes, it's a very tough way. I like it because it's good. I think it's good for business. I think it's good for people to see those guys being there. But um, I'm like, I stopped pursuing it, but I mainly stopped pursuing it because I didn't want to compete with, it wasn't even on the money side, but I just, I didn't want to be calling agents and trying to say, hey, guess what? I'm really good at this and I could really help your guy and then have to listen to some foolishness about, oh, they're going over to this guy, you know, who says he's the greatest speed expert in the history of, training and i mean the the foolishness honestly the lack of due diligence between agents and staffs themselves is is borderline embarrassing in all honesty because they are not seeking out the best places for these guys to be yeah that's that's absolutely bananas so mike earlier you said that the computer was one of the the biggest sort of impactors if you will on on the industry let's talk about social media a little bit um, because as we all know, um, it can be a blessing and it can be a curse. So, uh, give us, give us some insight on, on social media and what do you think the benefits are, but also I want to hear some of the drawbacks. Uh, the benefit you can communicate with anybody all over the world. I mean, social media to me, I started out again, I was around for the birth of the internet. Okay. I remember one of my clients a BU professor showing me the internet, like on my computer, he's like, you got to see this. And he like pulled up, he downloaded Netscape on my computer and he's like typing all these things. And, and, and he was like, yeah, this is like the internet. It's going to connect the whole world. You need to get your stuff on the internet. And I remember looking and thinking, I don't even have any idea what this guy is talking about. He's, he's talking about the idea that everybody's computer is eventually going to be linked to everybody else's computer. I still, you talk about starting with computers. I remember, going to buy my first computer. And the guy asked me, well, how much memory do you need? And I was like, probably none. I have discs. That was literally what I said to him. And the guy looked at me like, okay, you, if you're not the dumbest person who's ever been in here, you're certainly top five. And, <laughs> and, but I honestly didn't realize that we weren't going to be forever storing things on discs and that computers even had internal memory. And so this is kind of where we were going. So, uh, social media has been it's awesome. Think about, I mean, think about YouTube. Think about how much you can learn from Twitter. The problem with social media is that we behave like children. It would be like, you know, what do you think about alcohol? I'm like, I love to have a couple of beers. Yeah, has it ruined some people's lives? Yes, absolutely. If you drank every day, would it be good for you? No, it wouldn't be. But when we think about social media, I one of the things I always talk about is you have to curate your feed. You've got to look at it and think when you realize, okay, I know right away that person X is an idiot. Okay. I just block him. He's an idiot. He's a shit disturber, whatever. I'm not like he's gone. So my social media experience now is very, very good because I'm very quick. I have people all the time, sometimes coming back and appealing to me. Oh, you need to unblock so-and-so. And I'm thinking, why did he stop being an asshole on the internet? <laughs> Cause if he did, maybe he should have told me that himself, but, uh, but so I, I guess my point is that you can make it what you want to be. And I've used this analogy a whole bunch. When people say, whenever somebody says to me, I don't do social media, I look at them and think, well, you're an idiot. Because you're saying this is would be like saying, 
you know, I don't have a phone or I'd never bought a computer or, and I used the covered wagon analogy. It would be like someone, you know, if I said to you, you know, Hey Eric, how do we get to uh, California? And you were like, well, covered wagon, of course, worked for centuries. You know, people have been doing that since we got to the United States. And I thought, so you'd, you'd advocate for covered wagon versus a plane. And you're like, oh yeah, I never got into the plane thing. You know, I, I think California, you know, it's a good three month trip. You might die along the way, but you know, we're going to be able to do it. And, and so I look at when people are, are not adopting, I look at that and think that's, it's bad for you. It's bad for your business. It's bad for everybody. But at the same time, I look at it and think if you get addicted or if you become a troll or whatever it is, then, then that's also bad for you and bad for the industry. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Well, I, I can tell you this, Mike, and not only a legendary coach and trainer, but you're also a legendary arguer from some of the things that I've seen on there. Um, <laughs> and I'll, there's one in this one in particular, I've had this question circled in my head since we put you on our, our guest list is there's a bunch of hot topics along the way. And there's, there's one that you threw up there that to this day baffles me. And, and it hits home for me because it, there's, it's something we've actually talked about. Uh, and I have a slide in, in our course that I put up and I called it structural cost. And this was a couple years ago we created this. And then you came out with this term orthopedic cost. And there was this, you would have thought you shot, shot Santa Claus in the middle of Rockefeller center on Christmas Eve, but explain what your intent was with that. And then, I'm trying to see the other side of it and I, and I don't understand it. I, well, that's, I guess I, I'm right with you. I don't see it either. My, my point was that every exercise has with it a certain orthopedic cost, meaning there's going to be some, whatever stress to the system. I use the term wear and tear. The people that are arguing against me basically argue the idea that, that, exercise is always good for you and that I'm a fear monger. And if you say that exercise is bad, then you're telling people to not exercise. And I, I look at that and think again, it's somebody who's just arguing for the sake of arguing, because if you look at what I've done for a living for the last 40 years, I'm certainly not anti-exercise, but I am one of those guys, you know, along with orthopedic costs. I believe there are bad exercises. I believe there are things that certain people shouldn't do. I believe there are certain things in certain age brackets that you should probably reconsider. And all of this is based on orthopedic costs that I, I think that the body has uh, some relative, well, not I believe, and this is what I, why I argue, right? The body has an odometer. We all get old and die. Okay, every single one of us. Nobody that listens to this podcast is going to live forever, right? None of us are going to live forever. And when you look at old people, they look old. Aging is real. Now, can we delay it? Can we stop it? Are there things we can do? Absolutely. We can't stop it. I think we can delay it. I think we can look better. But we can't deny the inevitability that we are going to get old and that our, we're going to move more poorly with age and that joints are going to wear out. I, one of the things I said in my, my presentation, my orthopedic cost presentation, I said, you know, why are they? I forget what the number was I have in the presentation. But when you think of the number of millions of hips and knees that are replaced every year, 
Why is that happening? If there is, if there's not a wear and tear factor, and most of the, it's and it's almost all young DPTs with the people arguing with me. I would say almost invariably because there is nobody smarter than someone who just graduated from PT school. That's one of the things that I've realized. They are the smartest people in the universe. And then they just get dumber as they get older, apparently. Because they initially they have all of the answers and all of the answers are based on what their professor told them the last two years they were in college. So yeah, I, I don't, that's one of those ones that I really struggle with people who are arguing against because I look at it and think, how can you not look at exercise and think that at a certain point, this is probably not good for you? And usually what they love is everybody loves to argue the outlier. Well, you know, I know a guy who's been powerlifting, you know, and he's still powerlifting at 65 years old. Or I have a friend who ran a marathon at 70 or whatever. And I'm like, great. Certain people were absolutely positively born with better connective tissue or better joint surfaces or whatever it is than other people. There is no question. I was born with crappy connective tissue and crappy joint surfaces. I have had, I had shoulder problems from swimming in high school. I had knee problems. I, I can literally remember my first knee surgery. And I looked at the doctor and I said, what happened? And he was like, he said, ah, basically your cartilage just kind of wore out. He said, you know, there's nothing, you know, you because I didn't have any incidents. I just was, one day I was like, geez, it's tough for me to squat down. And my knee was kind of, and I finally went in, I had an MRI done. He's like, yeah, you got a big meniscus tear. And I'm like, how do you think I did that? He said, I think it just wears out. I was in my thirties, early thirties. And, but my orthopedic surgeon friend said, yeah, sometimes they just, you know, they're shock absorbers and they just stop shock absorbing and they develop a little rip in them. But other people are saying if, you know, if I just run more, right. Or if I'd done more plyos that somehow my cartilage would have magically regenerated itself and I wouldn't have those problems. So it's almost science denial for some of them or, um, Denial of of common sense. I, I think that's what I think sometimes when you look at things empirically and say, I know empirically that aging happens. I know that the old people that I know don't feel as good getting out of bed as the young people that I know. I don't know many 14 year olds who tell me, man, when I get out of bed, it takes me five minutes of walking around to feel good. But I know a lot of 60 year olds who say that. And that tells me that it's got something to do with aging. <laughs> so I mean, using outliers as, as your defense is is kind of ridiculous. There's octogenarians who smoke and drink whiskey. Like, are we going to prescribe that as 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 you know your healthy regimen from from now on? Exactly. But I, I always I always took it from a different angle of saying it's just about how do you, what what drives your decision making when you're putting together a program, and there's always risk reward involved. Like, would you give you know, overhead barbell snatches to somebody who's never done it before. Well, no, because there's some risk involvement. And then, so the the analogy I always give when I when I tell the story is, is like I had a kid who was a he was a uh, rising senior who was a, a lineman who was getting recruited by a bunch of Division One schools. The school he went to their camp said you need to lose some weight, which he did. But and they said you need to start running. Now this kid's 340 pounds. His knees rub together, and his medial malleolus scrape the ground when he runs. What's going to happen when he runs? Yes, he will lose a couple pounds at the cost of his knees and ankles. So it's not that running is bad or bad for everyone, but that kid, that's not the best choice because the structural cost is too high, right? Isn't it just risk reward and just how you drive your decision-making? 
Exactly. I mean, we're we're 100. I say that. I mean, I always say overhead lifting period is bad for most adults. And I, I wrote an article one time called the airport screening test. I said if you just go into the airport and stand by the screener and watch everybody go in there, one thing you realize relatively quickly is that 99% of adults cannot get their arms over their head. And most of them aren't close. And then, like you said, we look at that and think, you know, snatches or push jerks or overhead squats or things like that and think. And then we I was having the argument with somebody the other day, actually today, not argument, discussion. I was discussing this on Twitter, Eric. I wasn't arguing with anybody. I'm just a good, I'm a, I'm a um, vehement discusser. Uh, but they were arguing for upright rows. And I think, if we know anatomy, we understand that like that extremes of abduction and extremes of external rotation tend to not be shoulder friendly, like you said, structurally friendly, right? And so I said, I don't like those exercises. I don't like exercises that put you in those positions. I don't like behind the neck lat pull downs. I'd much rather see a lat pull down done in front of you so that I can limit my abduction and external rotation because I know the way the joint is structured. I like the independent functional trainer machines because now my arms can work independently and I can work. I always say I can even work from internal to external rotation as I pull because I know how the joint works and I know that that's going to lessen my quote unquote orthopedic cost. But yeah, so that was one of, that was one of, I remember Kevin Karst came back that next day and said, you, can you believe that people are arguing about this? And I looked and thought, no, I didn't. I thought that I would be absolutely positively 100% of the people would be in total agreement with me. And I would say that produced more like internet shitstorm than maybe anything I've ever said. If not, it's pretty close. <laughs> it's funny about the upright row because like, you know, teaching with FMS, we run the, you know, subacromial impingement test. And I'm thinking this is the movement we're checking to see if your shoulder is impinged. This yeah. is an upright row. It's, it's the identical movement. Like right. if one of them is used clinically to provoke pain, it's probably not good to use for a strength and conditioning protocol. Right. Exactly. But who am I to say? With, uh, and, and but that's, anyways, a really that's, a, that's a perfect case, but that's a really perfect illustration. But that's exactly what I mean, though, is that people look at this and think they they just what I've realized is they just want to defend whatever it is that they do. And I think that's so if you look at me, the thing that I've been able to do is I've adapted and I've adapted based on whether it was, you know, meeting Greg Cook or meeting Vern Gambetta or meeting Stuart McGill or when you meet somebody that you think hey, this person's really smart. I should listen to their ideas on training and maybe see how what they're saying could make my training better. Whereas a lot of people think um, I should intentionally dislike this person because they don't agree with me. That tends to be more strength and conditioning and fitness people is that instead of looking at someone and saying, hey, this person is way smarter than me and I should be listening, they think, hey, this person is way smarter than me, so I'm going to say bad shit about them, and I'm going to make sure that I don't listen to a word that they say ever again. And and that, but the good thing about that, that's why there's so much mediocrity in our field, and that's why it's so easy. I always say it's really easy to be successful in our field. Just basically don't be an idiot, and you're probably going to be halfway there. You get, you're halfway to the finish line, and then if you actually 
spend the time to to be good. And all you got to do to be good, I talk about the same things all the time. You just got to learn how to copy, right? Find smart people, cheat off their paper, right? Be a nice person. Don't be an idiot. Bang. You're a, you're an influencer. You're, you're a fitness uh, guru. All you got to do is be good with Photoshop, and and that's the uh, that 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 covers all the points. But all right, so we're going to change gears a little bit. Sports specific training. So you've worked with hundreds of athletes from various sports at various levels. So how much of an athlete's performance training is specific to their sport versus building a set of physical ap- attributes that have carryover to developing their athleticism or their already sort of developed athleticism? Well, I think if we look at Pareto principle and say 80-20, we might be tipping on the high side. I think it's probably going to be closer to 90-10. And so if I looked at for us, and I say this all the time too, I'm like a walking repeat machine, I guess, cliche after cliche. But I always tell people, if you came into our facility and watched our athletes train, you might be able to figure out who played what by looking at their body types but you would not be able to figure out who played what by watching them train. You would have absolutely no idea because if we come in, everybody's going to foam roll. Everybody's going to stretch. Everybody's going to do dynamic warm. Everybody's going to do some rotational metabolic exercises. Everybody's going to do some plyos. Everybody's going to run some sprints. And then when we start lifting, maybe an athlete who's involved in repetitive overhead sports might have a slightly different program than everybody else, but pretty much, I mean, if you walk, and I have this argument all the time with people, you know, they say, can you design a program for baseball? I'm like, I always kind of look and go, not really. Because <laughs> I just design a program. And if your kid plays baseball, he'll definitely get better at baseball if he does it. But I wouldn't tell you it was a baseball-specific strength and conditioning program. But we still, we window dress a little bit. We'll throw a little arm care stuff in there for the baseball people because that's what they care about. And And they're really about the only ones that we actually have to cater to a little bit. The rest of the crowd just kind of goes along and realizes that if you walk in here, I can basically point out a jersey of somebody who was really good at what you want to do, who trained on this, what people would accuse us of being a very generic program. But it's like a good generic drug, right? A good generic drug is still a good drug. doesn't make it bad because it's generic. It just means it. Doesn't have a brand name slapped on it. All right. So there's a couple of pieces that you dropped along the way that I'm going to put together here for the next question. You mentioned meeting Gray Cook. You mentioned you enjoy a few beers. There's a legendary story of how you guys started talking about this concept of regional interdependence and came up with the joint by joint approach. Kind of tell us your side of the story and how you kind of envisioned that the practical application of that whole thing. So my recollection of this is I believe we're in Chicago in the McCormick Center. There's a little bar in that place that's really the only place you can go. There's not a whole lot of options. That's the only negative about when they do the summits at that McCormick Center. We're sitting at the bar in there, and Gray and I are talking movement screen, which, you know, when when we get together, basically it's either family talk or shop talk, and there's a little of both. And somehow he, I say something about, I think that, squatting is going to be almost always an ankle mobility problem and that 99% of the people get better when you block their heel up. So I said, we don't see very many ones and you know, your, your, uh, your one turns into a two or, you know, your, your, as soon as you raise their heels, bang, they're better. 
And and he literally looked at me and I remember he said, yeah, he goes, because it's just mobile, stable, mobile, stable, mobile, stable. And I'm like, I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, your ankles need to be mobile. Your knees need to be stable. Your hips need to be mobile. Your lumbar spine needs to be stable. He got that far and I literally said, stop. And he's like, why do I have to stop? I said, because I have to write this down. This is, you don't understand. This is really important. You don't even do that. Because I one of the things I love about Gray is he can say some really smart, profound stuff and have no idea that anybody else listening thinks it is either smart or profound. So I legit stopped him. I waved to the bartender. I said, can I have a pen? And I took a bar napkin and I literally wrote down like mobile, stable, mobile, stable. And I sketched out that joint by joint idea on a bar napkin and stuffed it in my pocket. And then I was like, continue, go continue up the body as we were discussing this. And then when we got out of there, I went back and I, I wrote a joint by joint approach to training. I said, because when you really look at what we're trying to do, we get people and think, well, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about ankles, well, what do we need to do? We need to do some ankle mobility work. If we're thinking about knees, what are we going to do? Well, we're thinking about stability. We're thinking about getting them to have a more stable knee. We want hamstring co-contraction. We want closed chain. If we're thinking about hips, well, I need the hips to be mobile. I need that person to be able to get into these positions. If we're thinking about lumbar spine, well, I need to work on their, their core stability, which is really their lumbar spine stability, their ability and what I started to realize then is that my mind, I'm rolling in my head and I'm thinking, yeah, well, really what it's about is they got to be able to move their hips without moving their spine. So I need to have that mobile hip in the presence of a stable core. And then I started thinking, but hip mobility, I mean, I wrote, I was like, hip, hips could be a whole course by themselves. They said, but the hip needs to be mobile in the flexibility kind of sense. Like I need to be able to get into certain positions, but it also needs to be mobile in the sense that I need to be able to create extension with my glutes and not with my lumbar erectors. And I need to be able to create flexion with my, my psoas and my iliacus and not with my trunk flexors. And so I went off, I, I probably got a year's worth of tangents out of that five minute barroom conversation that gray actually, and to his defense, he's probably like, I can't, I probably didn't even say that. That would be his response. I don't, I don't remember being there. I don't remember this. This was the conversation and I'm looking at it thinking. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. And, but honestly, for me, I think when you look at how many people have quoted it, whether it's, you know, it's in the TPI stuff or Charlie Weingraff or all these people, you're talking about a, like a kind of almost an industry changing thought process that was just mumbled at the bar in between sessions or after our sessions were over. So that is that is the the true story. And, and the funny thing is it flies in the face of most even not even uh, the average person, but it flies in the face of most professionals' mindset. If, if any of us picked up our phones right now, we could not have to scroll long to find a text from a friend or, or somebody saying, do you have stretches for my low back, right? And how many PT clinics you're going to, they're giving stretching for the low back when it flies against the face of everything you just said. Yep. But that's where I think, again, that's where you're kind of separating the good from the bad. I look at people and think, if there are people that think that, then I look at them and think, well, you're hopelessly out of date. Because I tell people all the time, when someone says my back hurts, I always tell them, when we get your hips moving, your back will stop hurting. And they always kind of look at me like, like my back hurts. And I'm like, yep, your back hurts because your hips don't move the way they're supposed to. Your hips are too stiff and they don't move right. And when we get them to move right, your back pain will go away. And invariably, everybody's back pain goes away. And... We're so far removed, I think, now 
that sometimes I forget that stuff is still out there. But then I go, I actually went to a, a, a big box gym the other day and it was like when dinosaurs ruled the earth, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was watching. And then I think, Oh God, we really haven't, I keep thinking we've made progress. And then I watch those kind of sit, situations and think, eh, maybe not so much. And to kind of tie a bow to it, isn't that ultimately how we could define what functional training is, is that, you know, if someone comes to me, I had a guy the other day, his knee was bugging him. And the first place I looked was his ankle and his hips and say, okay, I always immediately look, look immediately above and below. And then we'll carry out the journey beyond that because it could be something even further away. But ultimately, if you look at things in isolation and say, well, my back hurts, I'm going to strengthen my abs type of mindset, or this is a problem that's strengthen or stretch that area where if you're ignoring what's above and below it, and then what's connected to those things and what contributes that's really what, if I had to define what functional training is, like that's, it's just appreciating that relationship. That doesn't mean you don't, can't ever isolate anything, but understanding that it's going to have a causal effect up and down that chain, whether you like it or not. Yeah, that's probably, it's, that's a reasonable statement. You're right. If you look at, that is what functional training is. Functional training is that idea that, that everything is interconnected and that, and again, because I started looking and it's crazy, but you start looking at people like Shirley Sarman was saying this a really long time ago. And there just weren't enough people listening. She was sort of off on her own in St. Louis, educating a, a small, relatively speaking, number of physical therapists that were kind of going to that particular physical therapy school. But there wasn't. And then and the other problem is that sometimes we can run too far off on tangents in terms of. I think some of the Gary Gray stuff, some of the the that kind of functional stuff went too far in the other direction where people were suddenly not lifting weights at all anymore and everything was just about the foot moving and and I thought nope that's not it either there has to be the answer is probably always somewhere in the middle and probably not at one extreme end or the other but you need to visit the extreme ends in order to figure out where the middle is. So if you look at it, I I did a presentation and one of the things I said, you know, one end is CrossFit, the other end is is sort of a a very physical therapy oriented view of training. And I always think Mike Boyle strength and conditioning probably is in the middle of that continuum where we're not saying you're not going to lift any weight at all and we're not going to keep everything completely safe, but at the same time, we're not going to do things that we don't think you should be doing like CrossFit is doing. And we're going to, we're going to find our way into that middle ground. And I think the middle ground is where the success is. So Mike question for you, you you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. And, and I remember seeing you do some, some, I don't know if it was just in the forums on strength coach or whatever, but you know, we were talking about joint by joint, the joint by joint approach to training. But, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, and, and I don't know if it's just because I'm more tuned in, but is, you know, the the individuals with the hypermobility, right? And, um, you know, being a guy that's been with FMS for, you know, a very, very long time, one of the things that I've noticed is when I start to look at the mobility bias patterns, you know, straight like great shoulders and all that other stuff, and I see those are good. And I see that the stability bias patterns aren't where they should be. I start thinking, well, maybe we need to dig a little bit deeper. And I go and run like a Biton scale and, and try to see if there's any other sort of information that will give me data on their hypermobility. So, and I remember at one point you saying, 
you know, I think we probably had some hypermobile athletes in our gym, but we just had really, really good training and the good training supported their structure. Can you talk about that a little bit more or am I just making that up by the way? No, I think you're probably not making that up because one thing we've realized is that I used to always say to people, if I had hypermobile athletes, it was kind of like when we stretch and eh, don't really stretch. I started to say like, you can, you get to go through the motions. My daughter was like that very like could do splits, had no problem. And it was kind of like, it's like, you can mail in the stretching. Like when we're stretching, just do it along with everybody else. But this is, doesn't need to be an area of focus for you. The, one of the guys that helped me honestly with that. And I can remember Mike Reinold, when I went to work for the Red Sox said, some of these guys aren't going to need to stretch. And I remember thinking, Mike doesn't know what he's talking about. And then I got there and I saw some of our pitchers and I was like, he's absolutely right. There's a couple of these and they were the long whippy guys. They were, you know, John Lackey, Beckett, Andrew Miller. They were really mobile for big guys. And I remember thinking, because, because again, I think you go back to the 80, 20 thing, right? And I would look and I'd get, and I'd say 90, 10, 90 percent of people are going to benefit from getting more flexible. Stretching is going to be good for 90 percent of the population. 10 percent of the population are going to probably get worse. The interesting thing about that, I had one of my friends, Elspeth Fino, who's a really smart woman. She said, the problem with yoga is that everybody doing yoga shouldn't be and that everybody not doing it should be. And I thought, brilliant statement. So and not to bash yoga, but it was just the idea that we all like to do what we like. So if you're really mobile and you can get into all the positions, you look and think someone should say to you, okay, you're out. Don't do that. But you'd gravitate towards that and think, oh, no, I'm going to do more of that because I found something that I'm good at. Whereas the other person goes in and thinks, oh, my God, I can't, I, you know, I can barely touch my toes. I can't get in any of the positions. I feel like an idiot. And you think, oh, you have to stay. And that's where sometimes you look, and I used to always say, we we used to run our strength, our training programs in college, like, you know, it was a little more of the, like communism in terms of we would, we were just going to tell everybody what they were going to do. There was no votes. There was no democracy. Nobody got to decide what they were going to do because we knew, or at least I thought, I know what's good for everybody in this particular situation. And I know, I used to always say, if I let people vote, they will automatically vote. This is why I was, a, and I'm all over the place, but it's why I don't like monitoring. People always say, oh, you know, we're, we're instituting a monitoring system. And I think, well, that means the complainers are going to complain and the people that don't complain aren't going to complain. I don't know if we're going to get the type of data that we really need to get because I used to monitor in college all the time. And what I had, I developed this sort of central bandwidth monitor. I had five or six guys that I really monitored. I didn't, the dogs, the guys that didn't like to work and didn't want to do anything. I never asked them how they felt. I never asked them what they wanted to do. I said, you know, I don't communicate with those guys. I just tell them, here's what we're doing. And then the overachievers, I asked them, but I'd never listened to them because they would always tell me we weren't doing enough. My bandwidth was the middle guys. And I'd always think if the middle guy is tired or the middle guy said the workout was too hard or the middle guy said something, I'd think, ooh, I need in this central band, I need to really be tuning my ears up to that guy because he's giving me really valuable information. So it's, I guess with all this stuff, it, it's not easy, but it is that ability, like you said, you know, bait and scale, whatever, you know, recognize the outlier, look and think, okay, this person clearly, you know, you look at the people who have, you know, 
their elbows hyperextend, their knees hyperextend. You look at that person and think that person's probably not going to need to stretch very much. They're probably, but, and like you said, the reason we talk about, but those people got better because the only thing you can do if you have a hypermobile person is get stronger. It, the bad part, like you give me a big stiff, I'm going to be able to do a lot of stuff to get him better. I'm going to say, you know, rolling is going to make you feel better. Stretching is going to make you feel better. Mobility work is going to make you feel better. Strength training is going to make you better. And the big stiff gets better from everything. You give me a hypermobile gymnast, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, man, we got to we got to hammer our strength and stability work because we got two tools at our disposal right now that are going to have any value for these people. So that's why, again, when you think, you know, yeah, sports specific, yeah, gymnasts, figure skaters, dancers. Those people are going to be a, a subgroup overhead. We, we call them, you know, throwers, overhead athletes, but it's tennis players, volleyball players, baseball players. Those people, yes, they're going to be their own subgroup. But most everybody else kind of drops into that same beautiful 80% bucket where if you just if you just kind of stay down the middle, you're going to be fine. You know, as you're saying this, I keep thinking of how we kind of approach it, saying have, you need to have a really good checklist to know all right, these are the attributes that we need to end up with. And do you have those? Well, if you've already checked that mobility box, we don't need to do that a whole lot with you, but we need to put two checks next to the strength and, and stability box. The problem that we, I think we get into is when we think something is good, we think we need to throw away all the other stuff. And you get that super stiff pitcher that loves yoga. They see a report of how so some other pitcher started doing yoga and they got a whole lot better. So I'm going to drop everything to yoga. And what I have to explain to them is say, your yoga instructor is the slowest person in your town, right? They don't have to produce a lot of force. You still need to produce a lot of force and have that kind of mobility. So like you can't throw away the rest of the checklist just because you need one thing and we're going to throw away the rest of it. Right. And that's, that's the, that's the problem. That's sort of the, our industry in a nutshell, in terms of there are too many people vying, particularly in the pro athlete world everybody's vying for the attention of the same kind of small subgroup of people. And uh, not all those people maybe necessarily have the, the skill set to be able to be helpful with those people, but they still, they want the involvement. They want whatever you think comes with that. And when you're young, I think there is some, some prestige and some things that come with your acquaintance with professional athletes that, that you will outgrow. But when you're in your probably, I mean, and I was in that boat. I mean, I can remember being in my late twenties and hanging around with the guys in the Boston Bruins and thinking, this is pretty cool. I can, you know, I can walk into any bar that I want to with these guys and people are giving us free drinks and life is pretty darn good. And then you get a little older and you think, uh, I don't really want to go to the bar with a bunch of those guys. I'd rather stay home and watch TV. But when you're in your twenties, it's a little bit different. All right, so so last question. Talking about professional skill sets, skills. Easy for me to say. Skill sets. Um, not only has your training center uh, NBSC had tremendous success and longevity and built this world class reputation, but you also have a, a knack for building some really talented coaches. We were talking about it right before we hit the record button. Kevin Carr, Brandon Rearick. What do you think are the key ingredients that that make a great coach? Uh the key ingredient to making a great coach is to start with a great person. I am 100% convinced of that. I tried it the other way a couple of times and it didn't work. So uh, again, I always say I wrote an article, but I wrote an article called, uh, I forget 
what the actual title was, but it was about becoming what we call the CNP. I think it was something like, you know, looking for the best certification, get the CNP. And then we said certified nice person. If you give me a certified nice person who's got a reasonable work ethic, I'm probably going to be able to turn that person into a pretty good coach because they'll show up, they'll learn, they'll do what they're supposed to do. I mean, that's Kevin is the biggest example of that. And I always use Kevin because Kevin started when he was 19. I think he was a sophomore at UMass and he was a little bit quiet and a little bit shy. And truthfully, I didn't notice him. And one of our other coaches, Nicole Rodriguez, who was kind of handling the internship and all that stuff during that time period, we were talking about people that we wanted to bring back next summer. And she was like, Kevin, the kid from UMass. And I was like, really? Kevin, the kid from UMass? Kind of quiet. And she was like, oh my God, he's going to be a rock star. You absolutely have to bring him back. And I thought, okay. And and we did. And literally the rest is history in terms of might've been one of the greatest things that I never did in terms of, uh, I had nothing to do with that except nodding my head and saying, yes. The other part about that, particularly with developing coaches is listen to your other coaches. Because if you, your staff will direct you generally really well, I have found in terms of, uh, uh, I had a great Ken Whittier who's now at BU and was with the Bruins for a while. And again, another great, great coach in his own right. But I remember saying about, that I liked somebody, whoever the coach was. And he looked at me and Ken was always very frank, probably a little bit to a fault. And he was like, yeah, he's great when you're around. And I looked and I thought, hmm, it's an interesting statement, Ken. What do you mean? And he said, basically just what I said. It's great when you're around. Not so great when you're not here. And I was like, and it, I almost, because Ken was in his early 20s at that time, and he probably was a little too expressive. I kind of, I I was a little bit taken aback, like, wow, this kid's got some balls, you know, throwing it out like that. But I really learned to appreciate his viewpoint because I realized this is a kid who will shoot you straight. If you ask him, you know, if I, I got to the point where with him and Steve Bigelow, I'd be like, okay, who are we hiring? We need to keep two interns out of the summer. Who do we hire? And I'd let those guys hash it out because they knew what we were looking for. They knew the type of person that was going to fit in in our environment. They knew what people's work ethic was. They knew who was playing it up when I was around to try to make a good impression on me. So I think they started to understand that what we wanted was the best person that we thought could become the best coach. We didn't necessarily want the best coach at that moment. So it's in some way there's a, uh, I guess there's a personal potential there that you're looking at. Okay, what is this person's kind of interpersonal potential? And because I always feel like we can backfill the coaching part easy. I always say, I say, you know, again, cliche after cliche after cliche, but I always say, I, I can make you smart. I can't make you nice. I'm not going to be able to change your personality. If you're a dick, then you're probably going to still be a dick. And if I let you work with the pro athlete group, you're probably going to be a bigger dick when that summer's over than you were when we started. You won't have gotten better in that regard. So we started to really prioritize that personality piece. That That is so important because uh, as, as someone who's, you know, I've been hiring people for over a decade now. Uh, you know, I wish I had this podcast about eight years ago so I could learn from all the dumb shit that I did, but um, it is what it is. But uh, so, Coach, we're going to wrap it up and uh, we're going to, you know, finish up. But before we do, what do you got coming up in the future? Any projects you're working on? What do you got going on? 
Not a lot. I just I just finished designing strength training programs and facilities volume two, which has now probably been out there for about six months. So that was one thing that I wanted to get done. I just put a bunch of lectures up on YouTube because one of the things I've realized is that we're not doing a really good job with our YouTube channel, uh, primarily because we, we use it as a storage place for videos. And a lot of the videos are 15 or 20 seconds a piece. So we don't draw a lot of people back. So we're trying to improve our YouTube channel. We're always trying to improve our CFSC situation, certified functional strength coach. We've got a lot of irons in the fire. Um, I'm always strengthcoach.com is sort of my pet project that I, I need to do a better job shepherding that along and getting more people on that website. Cause I think it's an amazing situation because if I said to people, I'll answer all the questions that you want forever year round, and you just pay me 15 bucks a month, most people would think that was a pretty good deal. And yet there's not that many people that take advantage of it either by being a member or by asking the questions. So I think I have to figure out a better way to, to market that and to make people aware of what we're doing kind of on a day-to-day -day basis there. So lots of little stuff. I think just bringing to the consciousness of, of young coaches and trainers that you, the importance of asking questions, like you're, you're not as smart as you think you are and ask more questions, I think is, is probably the more important message. And then, and then they can tap into a resource because to have that and not use that is, is silly. Yeah, I have people who pay, they'll pay a thousand bucks to be part of a mastermind, but they won't pay 15 bucks a month to think I can, and I can ask anything I want, 15 bucks. It's crazy. I think well, I'm not charging. That's the problem. I need to make it like a thousand a month. Then people will join. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll, see. we'll stay tuned for that one. Get in now. Uh, well, it's 15 before he changes his mind. <laughs> All right. That is a pleasure, guys. Quick hour. I, thank you. I thoroughly thank you enjoyed much. it. Absolutely, and so did we. And we want to thank you for your time and also on everything you've done for, for us in the industry, Coach. It's it's uh, It's been a blessing. And we want to thank everybody for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.